Okay, I'm ready. You guys ready? Cool. Let's rock and roll. Hey, I'm Andrew. This is the Nerve Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this episode. In this week's episode, I speak to Anique Magak. She's an author, she writes for an online women's motorcycle magazine, and of course, she rides motorcycles. Welcome. So in this week's episode, I bring you a conversation that I had towards the end of last year, the end of December. So without a further delay, here is this week's episode. I hope you enjoy. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. I think we connected, what, almost a year ago now. In January, it'll be a year ago. Really? It's um, almost longer in some Yeah, way. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think... Uh, over the last year of getting to know you, I've actually been surprised at how many things you've been involved in. I mean, from yeah. furniture design mm-hmm. all the way up to, you know, what you're doing now with um, writing articles for a motorcycle magazine. So after school, you decided to go and do design. I mean, was that your first choice that you decided to do design? Well, it it was. So I... I had a choice when I was in high school, obviously, like everybody, where where do you want to go to college? And I had gone to a very academically strong high school. And in the end, I just, I, I was like, I just don't want to go to a normal college. Like this isn't feeling right. And my whole background or what, what I was naturally drawn to was art. And that was something that I had always done growing up. And I was gifted at, fortunately, from my parents. So I ended up going to design school in New York City, a place called Parsons School of Design, which was made famous by a TV show called Rent the Runway. Oh, I'm sorry, not Rent the Runway. <laughs> I uh, run, It was called something, I can't even remember the name of it, but a lot of people know the school because of this TV show. And I went to school. I thought I was going to art school and I actually ended up going to design school. But at 17, I didn't know what the difference was really between art and design. And it ended up being the best mistake of my life because here I was in New York City at 17, completely immersed in this design world in the, you know, one of the best cities for design in the world. And I ended up focusing on product design and and specifically furniture design. And so when I graduated, I ended up working in the interiors, interior and architecture world until I got out of that by accident as well. (laughs) So that, that was the beginning of my journey in design. And then from there, life kind of took over and all sorts of different things happened where I ended up getting out of design, although always keeping a foot in it, whether I'm still consulting for interiors now. And also, which actually ended up, I got into health and fitness from there and the solar industry as well at a certain point. And then in the end, everything kind of came together when I wrote my book in 2014, uh, which was called Clear, How to Simplify Your Life and Live More Fearlessly, which was a combination of my design background and also, also my health and wellness background. How did you get into the fitness thing? I mean, was that a life work-life balance or whatever? Because, I mean, you went yeah. the whole hog. You didn't do just, you know, I'm going to go to gym and do a program. You yeah, actually 
did you become uh, uh, like a almost like a health coach or yes well okay so what ended up happening was that once i had gotten out of the design world i had then ended up in the the solar industry which was which is actually an amazing industry but it was one that i didn't particularly love personally and i ended up having to travel for work this job that i had taken in sales like 80% of the time and at a certain point it had just basically wrecked my my health and when you're living on the road it's really hard to to stay healthy and then it was also wrecking my personal relationships in addition to that i had had this like past trauma kind of come up and resurface and i was just like had come to a point where i i just thought like i can't i can't continue living this way here I am in my 30s and I am fat. I don't feel good. I have no energy. I hate my life. Like I can't I can't continue this without something changing. So I ended up doing the thing that I knew would would naturally make me feel good is that I got back into working out in weightlifting. And from there it wasn't enough. <laughs> Any anything that I become obsessed with, I I become fully obsessed with. So you know, it wasn't enough just to go to the gym. I then had to decide that I wanted to figure out everything that had to do with fitness and also nutrition. So I ended up actually competing in bodybuilding and <laughs> in a class called mm-hmm. Bikini, which is the most unfortunate name for it. But it's the smallest muscle mass type of bodybuilding that you can do. And I ended up getting certified in holistic nutrition. And all of that really enabled me to become just way healthier in my life, but also gain a different perspective of of what I was doing and like, what is, how can we heal ourselves versus taking outside pills or any form like that to make our lives better, to get out of depression. Yeah. And then I got into coaching and helping other people, which has been incredibly rewarding. Oh, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) So, and then, I mean, you've also done the Toastmasters. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was kind of funny, you know, those things that as a kid you get yelled at, I always talk too much mm-hmm. in class. And it was like every report card just was like terrible. You'd be like, you know, she speak, Anique speaks too much in class. There's all these problems, blah, blah, blah. But it ends up being like one of these assets that you have as an adult. And when I was doing sales managing for the solar industry, for the design industry, like all these different things, I the biggest thing I had was the gift of gab. And I was able to, I'm naturally able to talk to anybody, which has been awesome. And I just, I I find people interesting. So I thought to myself, okay, you know, here I am. I want to get better in my, uh, my job, which is sales. Cause I always think that there's a way to, even, even though I wasn't loving that job, especially in solar, the company that I was working for at that time, their vice president of sales actually encouraged all the sales reps to become part of Toastmasters and they were paying for it at the time. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll put this out and see what it's about. And for anybody who doesn't know what it's about, it's an international organization that facilitates learning how to public speak. And the best thing that Toastmasters helped me with was get very succinct with my language because when we're we're speaking publicly, it's really easy. And I'm sure you've been either interviewed people like this or you've been in the presence of other people like this who they meander when they talk. They say a lot of ums, ahs. They're like, yeah, you know. So <laughs> in, in business, a lot of us don't have the time to do that. So 
Toastmasters really helped me become a better public speaker, helped me put together speeches. And I found out that not only did I love to talk just in general, but that I actually love to tell stories in public and I love to connect with people from the stage. And this totally parlayed into the health and wellness because when I went to go out and promote my book, I was able to put a, a talk around that whole topic of the book and go out and speak in a way that was much more dynamic than I think if I had just done willy-nilly learning. It's a much longer process if you're not practicing, but actually public speaking, I think most people don't realize that it actually does take a lot of practice. And these people that you see in the health and wellness world, like the the Tony Robbins and the Tim Ferriss, they, they practice their speaking, even though they may not be necessarily public about it. And that's what makes them really good public speakers. I'm taking a break right now, but I'm actually thinking I'll probably go back. Okay. That's yeah. good. Because I mean, it's something, it's something that I've thought of uh, maybe doing because obviously I'm falling into that category of the um and, ums and ahs. Yeah. And uh, well, you know when I was you know when I was a kid I used to stutter. So mm. you know it's been it's been one of those journeys where you know you get to a point where you don't stutter anymore. But you know standing up in front of people talking is not exactly my first love. And obviously mm. you now doing the podcast is you know is one of those things that I'm trying to put myself out there you know, push the boundaries. And um, I've actually thought about after seeing that you had done the Toastmasters thing, mm -hmm. maybe it's something I should look into. So, so there you go. You know, so that's one thing I'm going to try. Yeah. And the, the other thing I encourage people to get involved with them and, you know, I'm not affiliated with them. I don't get a kickback. I'm just uh, talking about them because I think that they're, they really hone down how to practice speaking. But the best thing is that the community is so warm and supportive that when you are giving a speech, and most of them are, are short, is that you're getting a lot of positive feedback. And nobody ever gives us feedback as an adult unless you actively seek it out. And that is one of the things in trying to better ourselves in our lives is that to actually seek out constructive feedback and not asking the wrong people, but to say, you know, how can how can I make my point more clearly? How can this be more engaging? You know, besides even the ums and the ahs, it really makes you become aware of how you relate stories to, to the public or to other people. So I, I definitely, I think you get a lot out of it. So actually uh, thinking about it now, there was a, um, a business um, talk that I went to that was actually hosted by a guy that I think he's, I suppose there's some competitiveness in this, but he holds the, Best Speaker in South Africa Award or something like that. I can't remember his name at oh, the wow. moment. But mm -hmm. he's – I'll send you the link when I've got a chance. Um, I mean, he's so engaging that he takes you on this journey and then you actually don't realize until afterwards what he was actually – the story that he was telling you because he sucks you in oh, in a good cool. way into mm -hmm. the story and then he, you know, gets his point across. And um, it's a tech, it's a technique that I've, I've I've tried to use in you know like business presentations when I'm doing you know in the office, mm -hmm. and uh, it seems to work. Definitely seems to work, but obviously it takes a lot of practice. It does, and like any of those kind of environments where you, where you're at work and you're trying to do this, nor is an opportunity to practice, and it's all about practice. Like for me, even I was because of, in, in the sales, I was doing so many phone calls and talking to people via phone calls or Skype. I would practice during those phone calls, not saying um or ah, like I would consciously, I'd get on the call and be like, okay, that's what I'm going to work on. 
Now they didn't know that, when I was, you know, I'm trying to make a sale or you know, gain a new client, but I was just like, I would use every opportunity like that just to practice and see if I can do it. And it's fun. You can have fun with, with this in the learning process. Oh, that's great. I mean, I suppose that's important is to make these kind of things, um, getting into these habits, try and make it uh, a challenge, make it fun, set yes. yourself a goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So talking about that, um, I mean, obviously that helped you. I think sometime back you did all these live videos on Periscope or on yes. Facebook Live, mm-hmm. and you're currently re-releasing those at the moment. I am. If I'm, I'm correct. Re- yes, I'm releasing them onto YouTube, uh, which is nice that you know, it's nice to be able to use reuse your content that you're producing, especially for social media, because it's it's a lot to keep up with to create new content all the time, as you know. But I mean, when you were doing those, you were doing those live. I was. You would go out, yes. and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the Toastmaster stuff and practicing not the M and R that kind of thing is because I don't know about you, but you put a microphone in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been talking casually, no problem. You put the microphone in front of me, and all of a sudden, I, I, I draw a blank. Yes. <laughs> well, it, and that is very. That's absolutely common. And one of the things that I did, the reason why I started doing those lives again was to be able to practice speaking and in practice putting these words together or these thoughts that I had about certain topics. And the great thing about live that I get into, and it, I know that most people find it very like yourself. Like it can be very daunting. You know, you get on, and especially with Periscope back in the day and any of these formats, is that people can live comment as you're speaking. And yes. you have to multitask, speaking, staying on point, reading comments, and trying yes. to figure out which ones you should or should not respond to, especially when there's different <laughs> there's trolls coming through. And they're saying, like, especially during the day of Periscope, people were saying, these, I don't know where they were from, but they they were coming on and saying some really wild stuff. You know, like, show me your boobs. Okay. And like, you're like in the middle of a deep conversation. You're like, oh, no. oh gosh, how do I well, deal with this? <laughs> Oh, well. there's, there's always someone out there that's uh, trying their luck, right? Oh, that's for sure. That is for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so how did you um, get around to doing the book? I mean, I mean, was yeah. it in the before or after Toastmasters or what gave you the idea of uh, putting together the book? The book was something that I, it was something that I had in my mind that it would, oh, it would be nice someday to write a book but it sounds like this insurmountable project to actually do. And I always thought like, I, I don't even know what I would write about. Would that be like a fiction book? Would it, would it be, I don't know, something, something true. And I happened to be at a health and wellness convention and I was sitting in the audience and one of the speakers on stage, I don't even remember what she was speaking about, but I was sitting there and it dawned on me as I'm sitting in the audience I was like, oh my goodness. I'm like, I have to write, I have to write this book because as I was listening to the speaker talk, it occurred to me that we take for granted that we think or we think about things in a certain way. So sometimes I think because I think this about this certain topic, that everybody thinks that way about this certain topic. Right? I mean, like, well, I'm not that special. I'm, you know, I'm not, and you know, I'm just this normal person living trying to live my life. And then it occurred to me as I was listening to this person speak on stage that actually, I think that this idea that I have 
while all our ideas may not necessarily be new, you know, as we know, over time, ideas are, they're, they're reborn in a different way with maybe a different twist. You know, it's almost impossible to have original content. But my particular background and my particular experiences in life make my view a little bit more unique in a, in a certain way. And I, I can't take that for granted. So when I was sitting there, I was like, oh, man, I have to write this book. And the book is about this clear, how to simplify your life and live more fearlessly, is about how your environment impacts your success in life. And I just, in my mind, thought, you know, like, oh, doesn't everybody know that? Because <laughs> I come from this design background, and I've always looked at things based on design, especially through furniture and interiors and architecture, and how do we relate to our environment and interact with it. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Sometimes your environment that you create without uh, unconsciously, you create an environment that doesn't allow you to do anything to propel yourself forward in any way. And the most basic way that I can give an example of that would be in clutter. That some of us just live with too much stuff and too much clutter, and it doesn't allow us to expand our minds or to look at things more creatively because we are just surrounded by and bogged down by this clutter whether it's emotional, physical, just all of it in our lives. And there are ways that I know work to eliminate that clutter and to create more expansiveness so that you can actually get beyond these fears and create a life that you want. So that that's how that book evolved. I mean, where does it fall in terms of um, minimalism? I mean, because that's, that's a bit of a... Right. Um, yeah, I don't want to call it a fad, but yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, I think uh, reading up or, or listening to some podcasts on on minimalism, you know, it's taken many different forms over the last I don't know, couple of decades or even centuries in a way. Um, mm-hmm. How do you, for you, how do you feel? Does it fit into that, or is it separate? I think that it it does fit into it, but I also have an understanding that we like people, we like stuff. And we live absolutely in a, in a time now where we're a consumer society. You can buy anything and everything that you want. And so, and most people have the means to be able to do that. And a lot of people just will go to, I don't know if you guys have Walmart or not, but it's this like big box store in the US yep. where stuff is really cheap. And people will just buy stuff because it's on sale and they could, oh, it's only two bucks. And then they'd like continue to buy like all these $2 things. And then you, know, you can look at their desk that they're working at. And it's just filled with all this like crap, basically, that they bought. So circling back to the minimalism is I don't think that everybody needs to live like a monk. If it works for you, that's wonderful. I, I like a very minimal interior, but I also like luxurious things. So I personally will save up to buy a few key items that to me symbolize or feel luxurious. Now, dollar wise, they may not actually be quote unquote, luxurious. But to me, they feel and that's all that's really important. And I'm always editing what I have in the house, because if I have too much going on in my environment, I can't, I can't think I get distracted. I want to clean, I want to dust this stuff. And it, it to me, what it is, is just basically a distraction from life versus it actually enhancing my living quality. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I noticed recently, you've uh, cleaned out your closet. It's uh, something oh, yeah. that I'm going to have to do when I get back home because um, oh. mm-hmm. you know, I'm piling up with um, some clothes that I 
I just can't seem to let go of, but uh, don't yeah. wear them. And here, here's a point that I want to make about this too. So I wrote a book about this, right? And even I had to call in the big guns for this particular project because when it comes to household stuff, interiors are really my forte. I can deal with yes. editing furniture, curtains, lamps and stuff like that. But when it came to my wardrobe, I had a little bit of hesitation because, in fact, I, I, I had a lot of clothes that I had spent a lot of money on, especially when I was working corporate. And I was having a really hard time letting go of that stuff, even though I hadn't worn it in years. So I called in my friend, Jessica Cadmus, who is known as a wardrobe whisperer, and she's a stylist who deals with, actually, her, her forte is finance guys in New York City. Okay. She does the Wall Street set. Anyway. She came in and we toured through my closets. And this is what you're referring to that I posted on social media. We got rid of over 50% of my clothes and shoes and accessories. And I never thought that that would actually even be possible. But her having her eye and just her being like, you know what, Anique, this is this, none of this even reflects who you are now or what you're doing, going to be doing in the next five years. She's like, so just get rid of it. And I did. And how easy was that to do? I mean, to let go of that stuff? I mean, we just... Uh, you know, I, I was at this point. So getting rid of things or is also usually linked to going into a different period in your life. Mm. And I'm embarking in this, what I would call like a new season in my life. I've got a few, I transitioned out of a job. I, I picked, I'm getting, I'm working on a new really big project that I've been telling you a little bit about. and. I'm in this in between where I feel like I'm changing and what I'm focusing on in my work is starting to change. And this is always when I kind of come to this point personally is a very easy time for me to get rid of stuff. Sometimes you're just not in the right frame of mind to get rid of things. Like sometimes when people are going through divorces or some kind of big thing where they need to let go or their children are transitioning from in the house to leaving the house for college or to go move on their own, that people have a really hard time letting go of their physical things during this time. So I was totally ready right now to get rid of and be okay with the 50, over 50%. So, well, that's a lesson to me. I think I'm going to uh, take a leaf out of that book when I get home, man. Great. It's, you're going to feel so good. And I can't wait for yeah, you to, well, to send me a picture. <laughs> I'll, post, I'll post it on social media. <laughs> Great. Good. So, good. I love uh, that. And I mean, did you find it easy to write the book? I mean, in terms of the writing process or is it, is it just something that, I mean, have you written stuff before? I mean, like in school, I mean, was it something that you were good at? Uh, my, my high school education was really good. And in high school, they really pushed writing for us. But it was never something that I thought that I was necessarily great at by any means. And when I went to design school, we barely wrote. The only thing that we really had to write was a couple of papers on maybe designers or our our thesis, but it wasn't something that I necessarily had to do. I ended up starting to write a lot again afterwards when I got into the sales world and having to put together proposals. All that being said... When I decided to write the book, I was all in. And I'm kinda I'm kinda like this in life again, where I when I become focused on something, I'm like a bull in a china shop. Like there's not much that's gonna stop me once I become it might take me a while to get into something, but like once I'm in, I'm like, I'm all I'm all in. I'm all in, I'm doing this. <laughs> so I was working and at the time that I wrote the book, I was still working my corporate job and I was traveling again eighty percent of the time, so I wasn't around much. What I did was 
So I took a week of vacation and I wrote that full week, probably 16 hours a day. Wow. And I got, yeah, I got the bulk of the book done during that week, but there was still a lot that needed to be done, the editing and I needed to fill out stories. And what I did was I then, when I was traveling, I would write at night in the hotel rooms and I would actually, and so (laughs) I went back to the hotel room and I would, I would set up the desk. Like I remember this one time I was in Orlando, Florida, which is like, if you're there for work, it's like the armpit of of the country. It's not Disneyland Mm -hmm. everywhere. But I would, I pulled my desk in my hotel room and it overlooked this whole vista and I could see Disney in the background. And I just, that whole week and every night I would go and I would just go back to my room have a glass of wine and, and write. Yeah. So I probably, I wrote that book in about like that book from start to finish was done in about four months. But I must admit, because I read that book, it took me all of a couple of hours to read. So it's very easy reading. And, and um, I suppose that brings me to your next writing project, which is uh, writing articles for a woman's online motorcycle magazine. Is that correct? Yes. It is. So the Parent Magazine is Writer Magazine, which maybe your listeners might be more familiar with. And back in about 1999-2000, when I had just gotten into motorcycling, there was an offshoot of Writer Magazine called Woman Writer, and it was actually a physical publication. And I had actually, because I was so new to, to writing, writing, not writing, that I was so excited and I got a subscription to this magazine. Well, at the time, it was it was ahead of its time, let's put it that way. And there wasn't enough of a, a readership for them to continue the magazine. So within a year, I think it went out of business, maybe two at the most. Well, fast forward about 18, 19 years, well, yeah, 17 years. And this woman, her name is Jenny Smith. She's one of the managing editors at Ryder. She got the go-ahead to resurrect the magazine in its online in an online form now, which was now available. And through mutual friends, my name got thrown into the ring to be a contributor. And the rest is history. I've been contributing to this magazine, which has just been awesome. And it got me back into the motorcycling industry, which was something that I had always partially been involved in, like on top of all this other stuff. But uh, I yeah. had more of a and now because of this this like whole thing of writing for the magazine and really working my my network within the motorcycle industry, there's been a lot of other other opportunities that have come about and really has developed into this new project that I've been working on and I'm about to release in early 2019. Do you want to talk more about that or you? Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about it, but I also kind of want to bring up the point that these these two things are what connected us via social media. And I, yeah. I want to bring up the point that one of the things that I love about social media is this opportunity to be able to connect with people throughout the world. And you, you know, I'm in the U S you're in South Africa and we connected through Instagram because of both of our love of motorcycling. Yeah. Which has developed into a friendship over time over this past year and into, you know, these other opportunities and, the bad side to social media is that it's a lot of work and you know a lot of times people are just putting their highlight reel out there and you don't really know what's real or what's not real or what you know are people really doing this or are they not doing this exactly part of this connection 
of you and I connecting and me connecting with these other people via the contribution I'm doing to Woman Writer is that it developed this idea for me that, and again, in this new evolution of where I'm going with my personal life is I love talking and I love interacting and talking with people. And just before you and I got on to do this podcast, you and I were talking a little bit about connecting that when we ride or we go to motorcycling, it connects us with these people that we might not necessarily have had any connection with previously or any reason to connect with them because they're not in our circle of work. They're not in the circle of where we live. They're not in the circle of our family. And motorcycling, the biggest thing that it has done for me is create this community in my life that I have always relied on when I was going through a hard time, when I was going through good times, and to meet people. So this new thing that I'm working on is a podcast like yourself, but it's geared Mm -hmm. towards women writers and telling the stories of the women who ride and what they do in life and why they pursued it and what kind of experiences that they have had either as a result of writing or just the interesting fact that there's a commonality that all these different lifestyles, all these different women do these different things. But the commonality between all of us is besides being women is that we all ride. So my podcast that I'm launching is going to be called, or is called Femme Feroz. And I, it also will be part, it is this lifestyle brand that's being developed around it called Feroz. And that means fierce in French. Awesome. Also, awesome. Yeah. Pulls together my French background. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, you've got, I mean, you're from a French background. Mm-hmm. I'm first generation American. So both my parents are from France and I actually have dual citizenship. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, talking about motorcycles, uh, in some of your articles, you talk about some of the motorcycles that you've owned. Mm-hmm. You've you've owned a couple. Tell us about your motorcycles. How did you get into motorcycling? What bikes have mm. you owned? What bikes have you got at the moment? What bikes are you going to buy next? So I got into motorcycling when I was living in New York City, which now in retrospect is kind of a totally crazy idea. But when I was a kid, I was always drawn to cars and motorcycles, and I would which is also odd because my dad is not in my family. There are no gearheads in my family. They're okay. mechanically inclined for sure, but just not never were that interested in like car culture by any means. So I, I always thought, okay, well, when I'm older, I'll, I'll have a motorcycle and I want a Harley because that's the only motorcycle I knew anything about. Well, fast forward, I am in, I'm in New York city graduate like my last year of college and I was doing an internship with an electromechanical engineering firm at the time and all these guys that worked there had motorcycles and I was like looking around I was thinking I was like oh my gosh like if all these guys can have a bike in the city I'm like there's no reason why I can't do that so they helped me get my first bike which is and I still have it a 1973 Kawasaki S1 which is a two-stroke triple and I saved that bike from being strung up in a tree and set on fire <laughs> by some in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so that bike is my beloved bike. The other cool thing about that motorcycle is that it has always been woman-owned, which is super cool. So that was my first bike. And again, it'll be the one that I will keep. It still runs. And when it doesn't run or I decide I don't want to mess with it because it, it needs a lot of love and attention because of how yeah. old it is. It'll just it'll be in my office as like the as a beautiful trophy um, to me. It'll yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So 
I actually haven't owned a ton of motorcycles over the years, but I I had a Honda Hawk, a 1988 Honda Hawk, which was a a kind of a weird bike. It was um, a V twin that Honda produced in Elf, like the Elf oil kind of that mm-hmm. whole. They had actually designed it, and they they produced it. It was only produced for three years, so that was a really cool bike that I owned, and I started racing that bike. And I quickly learned on my first day of racing that you should never race the bike that you rode to the track because then I needed okay. to <laughs> get a ride home <laughs> after crashing yeah. that bike. And I was like, I got caught by the racing bug. So I ended up buying a Honda RS125, which is a full-on MotoGP bike. That's like the, the 125s are what all those guys start off with and they go to 250 class and then they go to the, the big MotoGP. And that yeah. bike was awesome. And actually, the cool thing about that bike was it shared the same frame as the Honda Hawk did, which was kind of cool. But very different setup as far as the bike, but they had the same frame. Then from there, I had a Yamaha R6 over the years that was all street fightered out. That thing looked pretty badass, I have to admit, which mm-hmm. was a really fun project to to make it into a street fighter. And then from there, what else did I own? Oh, uh, I don't know if I got the... I got a... KTM RC390, which is their street bike. And I just sold that recently. I got rid of that. Okay. Which was aesthetically a beautiful bike produced in India. Very low market entry price point. Very, very, very cool bike. But just not fulfilling the needs that I that I want currently. And then I also have a dual sport, which is a 91 Yamaha Sero, which is just a 225 dual sport, very, also very fun. You know, most of the stuff that I own is not that expensive or fancy, but I love it. And I have a a lot of friends who let me ride their super exotic fun stuff. And I also had the opportunity because I contribute to this magazine that I get to test ride a lot of motorcycles. So more and more, I'm like, I don't even know that I necessarily need to personally own bikes because I always have one to ride, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's correct. being yeah, in this that's industry. An ask, that's an ass pick. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. I will not complain. And anybody out there who's listening, I will totally test ride your motorcycle. <laughs> I don't care what mark, what brand, anything like that. Uh, yeah. I'm available. <laughs> well, that's great. And, yeah. it's, uh, it's, and some of the perks, well, other things that you do because of being in the industry is, I mean, you go to these events, um, you've done Babes yes. in the Dirt. Uh, you've just recently been to a, a motor show in uh, New York. I tell you what, let's talk about female riding in 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 the U.S. I mean, there's this okay. movement, that, you know, the babes in the dirt, the babes ride out. Yes. You know, there are a couple of ladies that have uh, been organizing these events over the last couple of years. You know, maybe mm-hmm. just uh, give us some uh, background on those events, what they like to go to, what the vibe is. Um, you know, just so that any female riders that are listening, that they you know, if they're not riding, what the appeal right. is. The number one thing I would say the appeal, especially for women, is the sense of community. And people will often say, you know, I'm going I'm going to ride or I'm going to church. They'll, they'll use that nomenclature to say that they're going to go ride or meet their friends. And the motorcycling community is very interesting and very special. And then again, that you get to connect with these people that you might not necessarily know 
or be around in your life, but it exposes you to things that you don't even know that are possible. What has changed a lot over the years since I've been in motorcycling now, almost two decades, is that there is, has been this huge uptick in women in riding. And when I was at this motorcycle show, I got to go to the, the press launch day, which was very cool, and get to see all these bikes and talk to all these manufacturers from Indian to Harley to um, who else was there? PTO, Ducati, like all, all these, all the big marks were there that could possibly be there. Kawasaki, Suzuki. But I don't, I'm trying not excluding anybody by forgetting their names. Mm-hmm. The things that they had said in BMW, actually, and I'm going to make a point of this because I thought this was really interesting and I, I was very surprised. So I get, I, on the press pass, I get all the, this whole tour of all these different marks. And BMW was the only one that talked about women riding, riders. Okay. And they made, which I thought was kind of interesting, even though in all the press releases, it was like a big deal because what they finally figured out is that 19% of the market are women riders now in the, in the USA. Okay. When I first started, I would say in like 99, like they showed that I want to say that it was like maybe five or 6%. So in two decades, there's been uh, like a quadrupling of, of the amount. I think that's about right. I'm not really good with my statistics. But it, it shows that there are a lot more women that are getting involved in this. And one of the things that I want to point out, because w- with all this happening, and you bring up these specific women-specific events, is with social, the advent of social media, I'm completely convinced that this is what has helped the industry most, is it has allowed other women to see that women ride, and also allowed women to see that there, there are different types of women riders. You have your traditional MC clubs, your motorcycle clubs that, you know, have that kind of sons of anarchy <laughs> look to them, which is not <laughs> usually necessarily even true whatsoever. Most of these clubs actually raise money for a lot of events and do poker runs and stuff like that. Yeah. That's one type of event, which is maybe, you know, more the cruiser set. Then there, Daytona, I don't know if you've heard of like those kind of events, Daytona, Sturgis, like that kind of like old school yeah. chat, bikini tops. But there's also this whole culture where this Babes Ride Out, which was started in California, is much more of a laid back kind of ragtag. <laughs> I, I use the term ragtag loosely because it's not. It's very well curated. The whole Babes Ride Out is very well curated, which is what is making it very attractive to women riders. But it's piquing the interest because they're seeing these women show up to these events and they range in age from young, from like, let's just say new riders, let's like 20-year-olds, up to 60 to 70-year-olds. And that has done a lot. And then there's all these microcosms, because then, then there's mm-hmm. the racers who go to the track and they race. Then there's like all the dirt riders. And one of the big things that I've seen uptick in for women riders is this whole dual sport dirt contingent that wasn't necessarily all that big, maybe a few years ago, but now is getting bigger because of the babes and dirt over an owl is another one that my friend Kelly runs. And there's just these more community events that are happening to introduce women to these different types of riding. So it's kind of also expanding. Not only can you get into riding as a woman, but now you've got your choice of what type of riding do you want to get into? Do you want to do long haul riding? Do you want to do like iron butt where you ride for miles and miles and miles? Do you want to, show up to the local bar or cafe, kick some tires and ride home. All acceptable. You want to ride on mm. the back? 
acceptable. I have no issues with it. Yeah. So there's a lot that's available and it's, it's really an, an exciting time in motorcycling right now because they're, the manufacturers are starting to pay attention more than they have in the past. And there's more yeah. grassroots attention being given to women. Yeah. Well, I suppose if you think about it, I mean, that's where the biggest growth potential is when it yes. comes to selling motorcycles is, is, is by appealing to the woman. Um, it is. And just as like one other fact that comes up from this is that when in a family, if it's a family dynamic, if the mother rides, more likely the children will ride. And the yeah. biggest gripe in the industry is that ridership in general has been declining Okay. over the years, which seems counterintuitive to actually what we're seeing. But it, in reality, when you look at the statistic, it, that is the truth. There are less motorcycle sales this year than there have been in the past five years. Okay. So the industry kind of needs to wake up to that. And actually, I do. I want to talk about one thing, which I, I definitely don't talk about enough is that I have been, I, I developed a survey and it's mostly geared to, to US, but I think that the, even the statistics would be interesting to women rider everywhere. That I have been putting out this survey for women riders to get feedback on what their biggest issues are and what they want in the industry. And I don't know that there's been a, a, a survey that has been out there in the way that mine has. And I've been getting some pretty incredible information, which I've been collecting. And I would encourage anybody, any of your listeners who wanted who want to to take the survey, because it not only does it talk about you know, what's lacking, but it also talks to people, to women who want to ride that may not even be currently riding, and why not? And the the statistics that I have been getting back have been fascinating because it's not some of it does not jive with what the industry is telling us. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. No, I was just going to say, I mean, have you, uh, you were doing that survey uh, from the point of view of the magazine or were you doing it as a personal project? Doing, I'm doing it as a personal project. Okay. The magazine has allowed me to reach a, wi a wider audience with that. And they were totally on board okay. with me gathering this information. And I, I wrote an article for the magazine about why I wanted to know this. And the biggest thing for me is that, you know, we see the statistic of the 19%. Which, however, the industry got that they, I'm sure they did their surveys. They probably can tell from the, uh, the bikes that are bought at dealers. But here, here's something else that, like, nothing's perfect. And a lot of women co-sign their motorcycles for their boyfriends or husbands. Okay. So, you know, sometimes you kind of wonder, like, I don't, like, is that statistic for real? that that actually is women purchasing bikes or is that, is that being used for, you know, so there, there's stuff like that, that may be kind of missing, but the, I, in talking to my industry friends there in the statistic that I told you is like the industry wants to get more mothers riding because it, it influences the second generation. Well, I kept kind of having a little, I understand that theory and it, it definitely is true, but I have a problem with it because I, all the women that I know, who ride, who are close to me in my circle of influence, none of us have kids. Okay. So if you are as an industry trying to appeal to the mother, but in fact, mm -hmm. those are actually not the majority of women riders, why right. are you even doing that? Yeah. 
it doesn't even, you know, it doesn't make sense. So I, I wanted to get more of an idea, like what's the age range of people who are really buying? Because babes in the dirt would have you believe that every 20 to 25 year old is riding. Okay. And it, just because of like their marketing and like who they're, they're focusing on of like bringing into the, into riding. Right. But the, through my survey, what I have come to find out is that the majority of women purchasing motorcycles are 50 and above. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So think about that. What advertisement have you seen even touches that demographic? No, not much. Eh? Well, definitely no. not here in South Africa. Yeah. And definitely not mm. in the USA at all whatsoever. You would Literally, you would think that every 20-year-old is riding, which is not yeah. the case. You make a very good point because from a South African point of view, if I think about, okay, you know, I talk about this from the BMW Motorcycle Club point of view because I was involved um, helping run one of the clubs, uh, mm -hmm. is that the majority of the women that are riding are, like you say, at least 45 plus. Yes. Um, very, very few young women. The younger women would generally be riding pillion. And... On your points about the about the women, you know, the mothers riding and affecting the second generation, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just something that's, you know, it's an anecdotal stat, but here in South Africa, generally women don't like bikes because they have kids. Correct. In the sense that they think it's dangerous and I've got kids, so, you know, the kids need their mother and they perceive it as being uh, a dangerous pastime, so they don't want to partake in it. And then possibly that translates into when the kids are out of the house that, you know, they're generally in their 50s and then they right. decide, okay, now it's okay to get a bike. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the other thing that is not being addressed as much is also that when you are, when you're 40 and above, you have just, well, it depends on what your family dynamic. I mean, a lot of people are having children late, but yes. you're more apt to have disposable income. I don't know. There aren't too many 20 to 25 year olds that I know that are going to lay down $15,000 in US dollars for a BMW. Yeah. Like that's not, like they can't even buy their first car. Like there's this whole issue of a lot of these kids are living at home because they can't, they're not making enough money in their first jobs. Okay. But then if you look at somebody who has invested over time and is now a, a mature adult, and been like, you know what? I've been given to my family. Now it's time for me to go enjoy myself. Yeah, maybe I will buy that. Or I, I have I actually have the money. Whether or not I choose to to spend it in this fashion is a whole other topic. But yes. they actually have the money. Yeah. Literally, I could talk hours on this subject because I study it all the time. <laughs> well, that's fine. We'll have to do a second podcast that's just devoted to that. Okay. I'm, I'm game for that. <laughs> but you made an interesting point there about BMW uh, focusing on women. You just actually jogged my memory yes. that the BMW Motorrad SA was running a campaign on Instagram with some sponsored um, posts that were showcasing female riders in South Africa. And it's I haven't seen any other brand do that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, it's – I. I was actually really surprised that during this this press interface that they were the only ones that that brought this even up as a subject because when I was there there was a head of marketing for Harley who was giving you know everybody every mark stands up and they give their spiel about like what's new and they they do all that so even Harley 
who was there had a their female motor, uh, their female marketing lady speaking about their products. And and this is not even a comment. Like this lady is an awesome lady, like in all in all forms, and I have tremendous respect for her. But even she didn't even admit or even talk about the women motorcyclists. And then another brand that I I'm probably going to get like <laughs> it was just interesting. I'm bringing to light this, and I'm like, not, again, I don't I don't want to criticize the industry, but I think it's just sometimes me, might be helpful feedback to them yes. to hear this. Is that even a mark like Indian? which is very closely associated with Babes Ride Out. They didn't talk about it either. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. It, it was interesting. And I, I'm just, it's curious because, you know, one of the few of the biggest issues with most of these motorcycles is the height issue and the weight issue. Yes. They're too tall for women riders, especially new riders to feel comfortable on them. But there's a lot of men who are not that tall. And I, you know, like I'm always like, I don't even know why that's, a topic that's not even <laughs> discussed anyway, mm-hmm. but it was very, it was just very interesting to me. I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting my ears perked up when BMW was speaking. And I, I just wasn't, I don't know why nobody else was, even, was approaching the subject. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe, well, maybe the rest of them will catch on now. I mean, it's just, you just need one, yes. you just need one to start the momentum and the other guys will follow. That is true. <laughs> that is true. And that, 19% statistic, there were probably, there were articles and articles that I showed that, that were being popping up in social media and out on Facebook and Instagram. So hopefully that statistic will resonate enough for it to maybe be more of a, a topic like, oh, it is that much? Yeah. And your results for your, um, for your survey, if you, you said you wrote an article, did you put various stats out on different, um, I haven't collated the stats yet. I, I, you know, I, I go and I check on it and I, I have to be honest, like sometimes I just forget, I forget to promote it myself, which yes. you're reminding me in this conversation that I should do Yeah. because I was actually surprised. I was expecting maybe I would get a hundred people to respond to this. Okay. And I've gotten almost a thousand, you know, for a grassroots survey to me is pretty, uh, I'm like really impressed with yeah. <laughs> those, that kind of feedback. And I have to thank all the male writers out there because the men were, they, they shared this survey more than any of the women did, which I also thought was interesting, which I thought was like super cool. Yeah. There's a general feeling here. You know, the sense that I get here in South Africa is that the guys are trying to promote female writing. I think uh, often it's mm-hmm. because generally it's the guys that go and ride and the women stay at home kind of thing. Yes. I think the guys are realizing that it's, you know, it's nice to have your partner come along with you on the ride and it's nice for them to ride their own bike so they can experience riding a bike instead of being pillion. I mean, it's okay to be pillion, but it's nice if you're, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if your partner's, you know, riding their own bike. So I do, you know, the feeling that I get is, 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 is that the guys are actually encouraging the women to get involved in riding motorcycles. Yeah, I, I think it's wonderful. And exactly for all the reasons that you're saying. And it also, you know, people maybe overlook, like it could be, it can be really a way to enrich your relationship. Yeah. Instead of it becoming, instead of riding, becoming this like elephant in the room or this, you go have your fun while I'm home. You know, it's like, it doesn't need to be that way. And it's about the journey of life and being able to explore and experience. Like we all want to experience and why not do that with your partner? It's amazing. Exactly, yeah. I think you need to make this an annual survey. Okay. 
a great point. Because I mean, if you if you were to run it once a year, then you could see the progression over, over the next couple of years yeah. and see what the you know how things are changing, um, improving or not improving. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the way I look at it: is that um, like you were saying, it's constructive feedback for the manufacturers to hear what we're talking about in terms of you know, the guys never focusing on the woman or only some brands focusing on women, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it'll, it'll, it'll help them understand the market better. Yes. I, look, I'm, I, I'm very surprised that they aren't doing their own market research. I'm sure they are. And I'm right. very surprised that, that, that their market research is not, is not showing them, you know, the kind of stuff that you've picked up. Yeah. I, you know, I, I and this is a definitely a huge topic of conversation. And I, the only thing I can think, of what holds it back is the fact that corporations tend to be very slow to change and adapt. So, you know, I'm sure from your own personal experience, you know that sometimes you guys have an idea and then maybe it takes two or three years for it actually to go all the way up the chain, get accepted, go all the way back down the chain and then make the changes. Like people just, they like the status quo, but it's weird because the car culture is able to make changes, which, in most of these motorcycling companies are smaller. So I, I don't know. I'm still, it's still something that I find very odd, but I kind mm. of understand, but I still feel it's very odd in this day and age. And I mean, another topic when we, you know, we talk about female riders is, is, is the clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in general, the, 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 the clothing is, is manufactured specifically for men or, yes. you know, they try and make women's clothing, but perhaps they don't understand the market very well, or they make, clothing that they think is going to be you know, suited for women, but it might not be the most flattering. It might not be the right. most comfortable clothing and all that. So, I mean, you've reviewed some, some clothing, oh, yeah. you know, for the magazine. I mean, what are you seeing in that sort of sector? I mean, is there movement towards um, developing proper women clothing or clothing that appeals to women? There is. There's a lot more options now on the market. At the same time, there is this sort of backlash to lack of gear which I find a little bit unsettling. Uh, I'll bring up Dave's okay. right out again because this is it's probably the biggest or the most visible female uh, event. So I, you know, I come from I have fallen, I have crashed bad, and I have if I the one thing I promised my family when I got into riding, which they were not excited about me doing in the first place, was that I would wear as much protective gear that was available to me and always try to buy the best. And also as a designer, I'm just naturally very interested in gear, technically like materials, like all of it gets me super excited. So I know firsthand what it, what it feels like and what the experience is to actually wear gear that works well. Now I've gone to a bunch of these women's events and the thing that I find a little bit horrifying is the lack of gear. <laughs> and okay. so it's this weird thing where there's a lot of changes that are helping in the helping in the industry. There's different brands that are coming up. There's different brands that are offering full women's line, like Alpine Star, Rev- Revit, Speedy, like any of these, or CD, I'm sorry, that they, they are specifically gearing towards the women. But at the same time, there's these smaller brands that are, I would call more like fashion-oriented brands which I think is a step in the right direction. Like at least if you can get maybe a girl who wouldn't wear a jacket 
to buy a leather jacket just because she thinks it's super cool. Maybe it doesn't have like all the bells and whistles, but it's still better than her bare arms and no hand, and no gloves on her hand. Because when you people really are like, oh, it won't happen to me. It will happen to you. And it is not going to be in the way that you can even control or desire. And it could really end your <laughs> writing career quickly and also cost you a ton of money. That, that being said, I, so one of the things that I talk a lot with Jenny Smith, who I've mentioned earlier is the editor for Woman Writer, is that one of the nice things about aging <laughs> is that <laughs> there's, there's so much that's not great about it. But one of the great things is that I'm a mentor to new writers or the, the people behind you. And one of the things that that woman writer that Jenny and I discussed that to be at the forefront or that was important to us and has always been important to me personally and also to her is that we can show by example. And I, I would like to think that I can make some of this gear to look cool. And I'm hoping that when people see that, or especially women who are getting into writing, that they will be like, oh, like that. Oh, that's cool. Like I could wear that Revit jacket with those like awesome Alpine star boots. And like, that actually looks cool. She doesn't look like uh, the Michelin man <laughs> walking around. And mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, that actually, that there could be something about that that is attractive because fashion will always trump. And if these brands are getting in and they're making cooler options and at different price points, like because that, that is very key. There are some uh, brands that I have reviewed that I'm actually, you know, maybe their gear is like 50-50. Like I don't love it. But the price point is so fantastic for an entry rider to get you in at a jacket yes. for like $75. Like that is yeah. awesome. Like we need more of that to happen. Yeah, barrier to entry is not only the the, the price of the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the gear as well. I mean, the gear is, is cost a packet on its own. Yes. If you're buying, like you're saying, if you're right. buying the right gear that's got the minimum protective features that you require to, to be able to ride safely. Yes, agree. Absolutely agree. Like most people will cheap out on a helmet because they don't feel like they have enough money left over after purchasing their motorcycle. My first helmet cost a little bit more than my first motorcycle cost me. And I never regret it. Oh, really? That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can buy bikes pretty cheap. You don't have to get the newest thing. I think that's also like a whole, a whole thing. <laughs> but um, and now... I'll still I'll still try to save up for and try to treat my gear properly by not dropping my helmet on the floor, like not being just dismissive of this like gear being what it is, but to to show it respect, which actually will goes back to my book is like if you treat your what you own with respect, it will respect you back energy wise. Like it's Yeah. So Yeah. You investing the money and you're buying expensive gear. Mm-hmm. And like you say, if you're looking after it, it does Lasts a long time. It does. I mean, if you're looking after it properly. So it's it's an investment. I mean, you know, I always look at the gear that I buy as, as, as an investment. I mean, the BMW clothing, which I bought when, you know, I bought my BM. It's not exactly the cheapest stuff around, but I've had it for five years. I'm looking after it. Mm-hmm. It's still no no issues with the gear, and I probably won't have to replace it for another couple of years. So It's amazing. Um I think sometimes people, yeah, and uh, and to go on the cheap is not exactly. I mean, when it comes to if you do, if and when you come off your bike, mm-hmm. generally it's 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 not if it's when. Um, you know that gear is going to save your life. I've obviously I know lots of people that have come off their bikes 
Yeah. And um, if it wasn't for the gear that they were wearing, they still got hurt mm-hmm. and they still had a long recovery after that. But the, the point is that if they weren't wearing the gear that they were wearing, right? you know, it could have been a totally different kettle of fish oh, when absolutely. it came to recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose if, if, if there's one message that can go out to people, it's always buy the most expensive gear yeah. that you can afford that's going to give you the, the best protection. I absolutely agree. And, and on the subject of that, I have my first Phantom jacket that I bought 19 years ago that still is amazing. And it has like scratch marks on that and all that, but it it still is in really good condition. And when you also pay that amount, most of these companies will allow you to send the product back to get fixed. It's not, okay. it's not the well, disposable mindset of, right, yeah. Which is pretty, it's, I think is awesome. Like I could send this jacket back to Vanson and if I wanted them to reconstruct certain parts of it, they would. Yeah, I must admit, I found a, a company here in South Africa that does the uh, the warranty repairs for BMW. Oh, that's great. And uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a problem with one of my jackets and the BMW guys actually gave me their number. And wow. uh, I contacted them and took my jacket around there. It wasn't that expensive to repair the jacket. Had that jacket going for another couple of years. And yeah, so it's also it's also nice to know that there are people out there that can actually repair your jacket so that you can get a couple more years out of it. Absolutely. So I think, um, like you say, we, we could talk on this topic for hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just want to say that I know that you, you said that you want to do these podcasts and you like to sip on your whiskey. So I just want to say that although yeah. it, it, our time difference, it's the, the late morning for me. I put some in mm-hmm. honor in honor of doing this podcast with you, Andrew. I put some whiskey in my coffee. Cool. Which I have been sipping this whole time. Oh, well done! So, <laughs> cheers, my friend. Cheers! <laughs> Absolutely. What whiskey did you have in your coffee? Uh, this one I did Dewar's because I just happened that it was the closest to the kitchen. <laughs> so I put some Dewar's whiskey in here, and it's delicious. Well, that's great. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing better than a good whisk coffee. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as an ending statistic, seeing yeah. that we were talking about statistics earlier on, mm-hmm. um, what is the most common motorcycle that women ride in the US? Oh, what do you think? Is it Harley? I would say or... Harley. I need. You would say at, Harley. Yeah, I should look at just to confirm that. I should look at my survey because that's one of the questions that yeah. I ask. But I would say Harley. That last time I looked, it was Harley, yeah. and it. I would assume that it's still that's still the case. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think Harley's are, are um, like the eight eight three is a is a good entry level bike that I see uh, women ride in South Africa, but they quickly upgrade to something else yes. like a street bob or maybe a a, um, a Dana or something like that. Yeah. Um, I suppose it also depends on the group that you ride with. Um, yes. Obviously, with the BMW guys. All the women are riding BMWs, which is obvious. Right. But um, but the other group of people that I ride with, the the women are riding Triumphs. Yes, that's a well. And Triumph in the US has definitely put made a big push, and they they've also aligned with you know babes and babes right up. That their marketing has been very strong with women, and yes, it's once you get into the all these like little micro cosms like. Harley is just mm-hmm. probably the biggest one because people recognize like that's what that is. But, you know, I, and I said when I earlier when I was talking about all about all the motorcycles that I own, like I thought 
as a child growing up, I, thought I would own a Harley. But once I got into motorcycling, yes. I was like, I don't want to own a Harley at all. And I've okay. only done Japanese or, Euro or European brands for the most part that yes. I personally have spent money on. And it just, it depends on who you fall, fall in with, as you, as you mentioned as well. Yes. 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 And, what's, and what would your dream bike be? I would love an MV Augusta. Makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, really? Yeah, just because I just think that <laughs> from a design perspective, they are so drop-dead gorgeous. Uh, the maintenance of them and all that would be a whole other issue. And, but yes. If I could just own anything, it would be that. Yeah. Well, I think we can end off on that. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. That was awesome. Awesome. And so another great conversation came to an end. I'll definitely have Anik back on the podcast. As you can hear, she has always got something up her sleeve and always trying new stuff. So thanks for joining me on this episode. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode. Hope you've clicked that subscribe button. I hope you are going to send me some comments, good or bad. Don't forget to support the podcast. Go buy a t-shirt. Until next time, my friends, catch you later.